Hey there, and welcome to another episode of my show. I am Father Roderick, and I'm recording this on a very, very hot afternoon. It is 29 degrees Celsius here in my studio. I've got my headphones on, which means that my ears are almost melting off my head as well. But that won't stop me from bringing you another story, another show. I remember uh, first time walking into this arcade. I was about nine years old, I think. And I'd never been to an arcade. This is something that I wasn't even aware of existed. But I was mesmerized because I loved computer games. But the only computer games I knew about were the ones that you could play at the local snack bar where you get your french fries and, and your fried food. And every once in a while, we would uh, order some, some french fries for the family there. And I would always would love to go there and pick, pick it up and, and, and ride my bike back home with the warm fries because while we were waiting for our order to be delivered, I could watch this, this machine, this arcade machine, on which they would have different games every month. And so the one game I remember very clearly was this game where you would fly a little um, aircraft or a bomber aircraft, I think, and below you were, were big skyscrapers. And you had to drop bombs on the skyscrapers trying to level them before and every, every round your, your plane would descend a little bit more and, uh, and then ultimately it would fly very close to the ground. So you had better level all those buildings before uh, you reach that, that ground level. And then it became more and more difficult. Now, of course, I didn't have money to, uh, to play that game, but it had a demo mode. So I would just pretend I was playing that video game. And then over time, those games became more advanced. And at one point, of course, they had Pac-Man, which everybody was playing at the time. And I just loved video games. And that was the only place where I could see them. But this... This day, I was walking into this arcade, and the entire place was filled with arcade machines. They were everywhere. The whole, the whole building was kind of darkened, and they had these flu- fluorescent lights, and it looked all very kind of futuristic. And you would hear the sounds of some of these machines, the, the little bleeps and, and, and music. There was a, a machine that played um, an almost like an animated movie. It was called Dragon's Lair. And it was, at the time, one of the most advanced video games available uh, because it was using a laser disc, which was totally revolutionary technology. And so you would, you would be able to guide this knight who was trying to free a princess and had to face all sorts of obstacles and ultimately also a fearsome dragon. But the, the cool thing about that video game was that since it was an animated, uh, it was all animated footage that came straight from a, a disc, and it was only at certain moments you had to press a button or move the joystick in the right direction in order to go to the next, next level or the next phase in the story. It looked fantastic. It... it all the other arcade games in that hall were super primitive because they were running on relatively old computer hardware, whereas that, for me, was the future. I mean, I was dreaming that maybe one day we will have video games like that everywhere. Um, and I spent there 
hours and hours just watching other people play. I did, however, have a budget to play some of these games myself. And the reason was that our parish priest, uh, was Father Perqueen, um, had come along, and I was there not by myself, but we were there with all the altar boys uh, and acolytes of our parish. Every year, he would uh, hold a collect for us because he wanted to thank us for the for our volunteering as altar boys uh, for for an entire year. So he would ask the parishioners to give us some money or to give him some money so he, he could give it to us, and then he would take us to this amusement park. And uh, the amusement park itself was nothing like, I don't know, Disneyland or, or uh, Universal Studios or something like that. We didn't have that kind of amusement parks in the Netherlands at that, at that time. So this was kind of more like a, a, a very big open park with all sorts of play gear for kids. But, but for me, the, the, big, the, the big attraction of that amusement park was this arcade hall. And I was just... It was magical to, to see all these screens and to hear all these sounds and to see all these video games. It was like, this is the best place in the world. And our priest would give us, every hour we could come up to him and he would give us two guilders. Two, at the time, the, the currency in the Netherlands was called guilders. And um, y- you could divide them into f- four. It's, each guilder was four quarters. And a video game, to play a video game on a slot machine, on a machine like that, it was one quarter. So every hour, I would have these two silver-looking coins, which then immediately, of course, I, I traded in for quarters. And it meant that I could play eight games. Or at least I could play eight, let's say, rounds, because, of course, these games were progressively more more difficult. And... Uh, uh, so I was extremely picky. I was always studying other players uh, and, and see how they advanced. And I remember the first game that I actually spent money on was Qbert. Qbert was this very funny alien, uh, and his snout was like a trumpet. And he, and he would be on top of a pyramid uh, consisting of colored blocks. And you could, it looked a bit 3D. Of course, it's fake tr- 3D because at the time computers couldn't do real 3D. But he would hop down these the, this pyramid, and you had to hit certain um, surfaces, and they would change color. And I don't know exactly how the game worked, but it looked fun, and it wasn't too difficult. A lot of the other games were very much um, uh, based on on reaction speed, and um, I felt like if I play games like that, I'm gonna be you know, it's going to be over in one minute. And I wanted my quarter to last. So after studying all these different games, now the, 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 the quest game with the knight was very expensive because it was so high technology. That one cost one guilder per game. So there was no way in the world that I was going to spend four quarters on, on just one video game. So, um, so I played Qbert and, and then I would go and make another round and, and just spent hours just thinking how am I going to spend my money and I was so picky that at the end of the day I would actually have a lot of quarters left <laughs> which I didn't spend um, but it it really um, it made a huge impact on me those those outings and we did them several times like I've been an altar boy for I think 11 years if not more 
from from the day I did my first communion, that was when you could become an altar boy, until I was 18 years old and I entered seminary. So that is actually, yeah, that's a, a little more than 10 years. So let's say 11 years. And I think at least three or four times we went to this amusement park. And um, and what I what I really liked about the whole experience was how cool our pastor was. Our, uh, the, our, our parish priest was generally very, very good with kids. Um, he always spent some time at the end of his homily to do a summary of his homily for kids. So he would, everybody would be asleep because he wasn't a very good preacher. He was a bit, um, I would almost call it lazy. So most of his homilies were just a retelling of the readings that we heard without much added to it. He would just kind of rehash the, the readings. Um, but for kids, he actually made some effort to tell a story or to put in a joke or something like that. And, and we loved it as kids. It was like, wow, this priest is talking to us. We matter here in the church. And he consolidated that image that we had of him as this very benevolent priest who was very fatherly towards kids um, during those outings where he would be this like this benevolent source of of these coins that could give us a fantastic day, and uh, and I think one of the one of the reasons that um, we all as kids loved that priest so much was that he was the ideal father figure. You know, he was someone who who um, made sure that he spoke to us. He paid his attention. He gave us like the, these 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 coins so we could have a wonderful day. He, he wasn't into any of that, but he would just sit and, and have a beer or a cup of coffee with uh, the, the sacristan and some other people that came along. Um, but when we came to get more more of our coins uh, an hour later, he would ask, you know, so what did you do with it? And did you have fun? And that's great. Here you have two more guilders and go have fun. Um, and it, it was in a certain way... Um, we all know knew, of course, that that priests would uh, lived a celibate life and and didn't have a family, didn't have kids. But we were like, oh man, we wish our parents were like that. <laughs> Isn't this the best? And and at home, I would beg for like, can we please get an Atari? What was it, the Atari twenty six hundred? Which uh, uh, some of my friends that had rich parents actually had. They had these these game consoles at home. And I begged and begged and begged, and no, my parents were absolutely not going to give us a game computer because, according to them, it was not good for our development, and we had better spend our time studying and reading books and playing outside, which I knew that the moment I would ha make my own money and I would have an income, I would not waste my time going to play outside. I would just buy an Atari and play video games. And lo and behold, 42 years later, I, that's actually what I do. <laughs> <laughs> when I want to have a good time, I just la I, I launch a video game and I play like on the Xbox or I love, love video games. And I think that love started there thanks to that parish priest who enabled us to to have that wonderful experience. And the, the strange thing is, even though he was a, such a great father figure, when we told these enthusiastic stories how much about how much we love this priest, uh, my parents were baffled and they actually said well but he's not at all like that no how can you like him so much 
he is very unlikable. And when he is with us and we're in, in a meeting or whatever, he can be so grumpy and so um, entitled and, and, and uh, impatient and stubborn. My dad told us that at one point they had a meeting with him and he didn't like the conversation and he just turned around on his chair. He, he literally uh, turned around so he would be with his back to the rest of the parishioners. And he said, I am not only going to turn my chair back until you do what I want. So my parents like, how, how can that be the same guy? Um, it was really someone with two personalities, two kids. He was super kind, whereas towards adults, he could be extremely difficult to handle. Later on, I heard stories about the uh, the parish vicar that was assigned to him, which he didn't want. He, he, didn't, he, he felt that, that it was actually a, almost an, an assault on his independence and uh, the, the diocese didn't take him seriously enough. He was totally capable of running that parish by himself. But anyway, he got assigned a parish vicar who had to live in the same rectory. And the parish vicar later on told me that it was not a good time. He was not at all kind or supportive. Uh, he was extremely stingy, so he wasn't allowed to, to prepare his own food. He had to eat what the parish priest would eat, and then every morning he had the right to get two slices of bread, only two, which the parish priest would then take from the fridge, from the, the freezer part of the fridge, and he would put them in a toaster, and, and that, that was breakfast, and uh, <laughs> just this, the whole stinginess and it kind of matched the, the rest of the, his behavior towards uh, the parish vicar. So I've always kept that in mind. Like, you may know a person from one side. You may see one side of that person. And that might be very genuine. I don't think that our parish priest was, was um, uh, like, playing a, a role or, or, or pretending to be kind. No, he actually really enjoyed giving us a, a, a nice day um, and, and, and to make us feel great um, but when he was among adults he would just switch behavior and he would be annoyed and um, I don't know maybe as kids we weren't a threat to him we weren't critical we all loved him and of course if you feel loved then it's very easy to be kind <laughs> whereas if parishioners have problems with some of the things that you do or once changes in the parish that you don't agree with it's much harder to be kind and generous and to you know be open and listening now, th these father figures in, I think, in all of our lives are remain very important. Um, these, these, and and not all fathers are equal. They don't all behave in the same fatherly way. In fact, this is something I became aware of when I started to work as a priest, and and people would tell me sometimes that they they had trouble praying the Our Father because it made them think of their own father, who wasn't really a very good father. And they would have traumas and everything. And, and that made me more sensitive to the possibility that someone's image that they have of God as a father may be troubling and, and a bit complicated because the, the fathers that they knew in their life didn't really inspire something that you would attribute to God. They would be sometimes even more comfortable ca calling God a mother because they would have a much more affectionate relationship with uh, with their mother. But um, if I, uh, I, I, I also met people who had trouble 
uh, with the devotion, the Catholic devotion to the Virgin Mary, because they had a troubled relationship with their mother, and then considering Mary to be this this celestial mother that takes care of us, it just didn't compute because they didn't have any uh, personal experience with a mother that was other anything else than than critical and and dangerous. So it goes to show how important it is um, to to realize that. Uh, th- there is not just one type of father. There's not one type of mother, um, and this this the 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 duality that you sometimes have in people was something. So the fact that that I heard, I started to see that my priest actually had two ways of behaving: one very kind towards children, and and very very awful towards adults. Sometimes um, was something that I also recognized in my own father. Um, my father died uh, this past week on, on Thursday. He's going to be buried um, on Tuesday. I'm recording this on a Sunday. Um, and uh, as I explained also in my other podcast, The Walk, I, um, had a, a, I had a good relationship with my father, but I'm also very much aware that my father had two sides. One public side, very kind, very humorous, a uh, good storyteller, and in many ways, I think I resemble him quite a bit, especially in kind of the, 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 my love for telling stories and um, kind of upbeat nature. But my dad also had a much more serious and, um, uh, well, less perfect side, uh, especially when he was stressed. Um, and he would never show that to the outside world, but in our own family, in the family dynamics, in the relationship with us, uh, his children... Um, he could be extremely harsh and um, emotionally distant, and he would lose his temper in in very unpredictable ways. Um, and and there were other behaviors too that that were, you know, totally the opposite of who he presented himself uh, in 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 public life. So uh, that a father can have two sides was something I was very familiar with, and I think that. The, this relationship with that we have with our parents has long-lasting experiences. And if that relationship is particularly troubled, it can also cause trauma. It can really damage uh, people. And that that hurt and that the trauma can have negative effects until very uh, late in your life. You can su- struggle with... with um, like hearing the inner critic is is oftentimes the 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 voice of your parents who might have been very critical towards you or for who it's never enough and so i've i've shared a lot of my own uh, thoughts and uh, and also my own growth in that respect and and understanding how i was raised and how much that impacted me and and in which way um and i think one of the one of the things that um I inherited of the way I was raised and of my relationship with my father was that after leaving um, the house, I've always been looking for substitute fathers. I was always looking for new father figures. And as a priest, of course, that seemed to be actually not not difficult at all because, after all, we, we call priests fathers. We 
work under the responsibility of a bishop who is not um, someone who just pays us a salary to do work for him. No, he's supposed to be kind of the head of the family. And the church has always been defined as a family. And so I would project this need for a father figure in my life onto the bishop or onto anyone who was, had a superior position, like, for instance, a president of the seminary. Um, and the other thing that I've realized is that not only I was doing this in real life, looking for father figures, and in a certain way also for father figures that would be different from the father that I had experienced, fathers that could be like that parish priest who was just kind and, and, and nice to us and, uh, and not critical. But I was also looking for father figures in the stories that I read and watched. So in books, in movies, in TV shows, and the books and movies that I loved the most featured father figures that in a certain way idealized uh, or were or idealized versions of fathers and people that I could um, picture having as a, a father my, for myself. Um, one of the books that I have read time and again as a child and which was my all-time favorite book and still is to a certain extent is... Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, or Charlie's Chocolate Factory, as it was called in the, in the Netherlands. And, you know, the story, this, this, this kid who lives with his grandparents finds a golden ticket, and with a whole bunch of other kids, he gets to visit the most magical place on Earth, which is Willy Wonka's chocolate family. And Willy Wonka initially presents himself as a father figure who takes care of these kids and, and, and brings them to all these different places in the factory. And what we don't know, we discover this later on in the story, is that he's actually looking for a successor. He's looking for one of these kids to be the heir to his empire. And so he needs these kids to have certain qualities. So what, the, what you start to realize it, when the story progresses is that it is actually a selection process. These kids are there without knowing on, to, to audition for the role of taking over the, the chocolate factory. But as a child, I wasn't really aware of that subtext. What I loved is to picture this guy who is fantastic and who's got, like, his factory looks like an amusement park where the rivers are filled with liquid chocolate and you can eat everything. And they've got little squirrels that are opening nuts and then they, they, those are the hazelnuts that you find in your chocolate bars. And it looked like a fantastic place. They had, like, a, 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 a shrinking machine or a television and you could become small, so small that you would fit in a television. I love those stories. It was so imaginative. And then Willy Wonka, I was like, wow, I, I, I wish I had a father like that. You know, it's just, a, I knew it was, it was an imaginary uh, story. And it's only later on that I started to see, well, wait a minute, there's actually, there's, there are two sides to Willy Wonka. There's here's public persona, who is this magical, always happy, cheerful, funny guy. But then there's also this shrewd business guy who can be very harsh towards these children and and there are some scenes in there and i actually realized this much more when i saw the movie version of the book where some of these kids are punished so so severely for their mistakes and their missteps and even towards charlie who for me was the hero i totally identified with charlie and then to see that charlie and his grandfather are almost kicked out because they made one tiny little mistake it was a totally different Willy Wonka all of a sudden. So 
same thing, a, a dichotomy between the good father figure and the harsh, critical, um, merciless father. Later on, um, another story that really touched me, and, and I still love it so much, is the, the first book of the Harry Potter series, where we, when we meet Harry Potter, he is uh, an orphan who is um, part of this Vernon family, and they treat him so horribly. Uh, Vernon, Uncle Vernon, is, um, is just so evil and so abusive. He is a, a, a total caricature of how someone can totally, completely throw away his responsibilities as a substitute father for Harry. Um, and then later on in, in the story, Harry gets to meet uh, Sirius Black. Uh, and first he's af afraid of Sirius Black, but later, later on he discovers that actually Sirius Black is his godfather. And, and that becomes a real father to Harry, who still misses his parents that he hasn't known, of course, because they died because of Voldemort. But, but uh, Sirius Black is someone who takes Harry seriously, who encourages him, who uh, takes him as he is, and also teaches Harry courage to be strong, even though um, Sirius Black himself is impulsive and can be a tad bit too adventurous and ultimately isn't able to protect Harry because he's killed. And so he, in a certain way, fails to be the father who's always there for Harry. Um, but this whole transition from a very bad father, Uncle Vernon, to this idealized Sirius Black who is like this great, you know, great guy, it, it, can, it helps us to grow with Harry in processing his his traumatic youth uh, or childhood and then to discover that ultimately you know you have to move on even if your 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 parents had their flaws um you have your own responsibility and harry over time grows into this very good leader who yes has a lot of you know um faults and and makes mistakes and isn't perfect at all but, it, but nevertheless, he is good. His, in his heart, he is good. He's courageous. And he stands up for his friends and, and, and wants to protect them and lead them. And ultimately, the story ends with Harry Potter himself becoming a father. Uh, in the very last scene of the last book, he is a father of, uh, of kids himself. And I think he's, he is probably a very good father because he has seen both the example of... an extreme example of, of what a bad father... Um, can how much how much a, a bad father can hurt children because he's experienced that himself and also how valuable a good father is who who is there for you and 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 so I think that experience is extremely valuable for uh, Harry Potter the moment he becomes a father himself. We also have, of course, uh, the, um, the 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 Star Wars story of Luke Skywalker and the father figures in his life. You've got on the one hand these authoritarian father figures like uh, Uncle Owen, who is, who is very much like, um, like, like my parents uh, when I was young and, and having to navigate kind of my ambitions and my dreams and my hobbies and, and this exuberant uh, creativity that would often take the place of my duties. And then, and then their, their own... Like they felt like but rules need to be uh, respected, and we need to make sure that um, 
he doesn't spend uh, all waste all his time with his friends playing computer games. And so when the movie came out, I totally identified with Luke, and I I hated Uncle Owen. I was like, ah, oh, come on. Let him be. Just you're you're curtailing Luke, and Luke Skywalker in the first movie is, you know, he's he's submitting himself to that. He he yes, he dreams of joining Starfleet Academy. No, not Starfleet Academy. That's a different genre, but a different franchise. But he he wants to become a pilot, and he dreams about a life that is bigger than than that desert planet uh, Tatooine. But when. Uh, when his uncle tells him, you know, I need you for the harvest, he is resignated to stay there. And it's only because his his substitute parents, his uncle and, and aunt are murdered, that he then follows this new father figure, who is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and uh and and, and is able to to move on beyond uh, the restrictive attitude of of Uncle Owen. Now the the tragic nature of the story is, of course, that he very quickly loses that newfound father, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's, who's so wise and, and can teach him so much. And, and before the movie is over, Obi-Wan Kenobi is killed by Darth Vader and, and, and Luke is screaming, no, this shouldn't happen. Um, and, and you wonder... How is he going to process this? This must be so traumatic. And, and in Empire Strikes Back, you see that Luke is still struggling with the loss of, of these father figures. And when he ultimately confronts Darth Vader and, and, and hears that Vader, the, the kind of the incarnation of evil, is actually his real father, it also crushes this hope that he had that, well, my father was a, was a famous Jedi. And yeah, he may be killed, but... I can still uphold this image of, and I can imagine who, who he would have been. And then he discovers that, no, actually, this guy who I believed killed my father is my father. And what does that mean for me? And you start to really fear for the future of Luke. Is he going to choose the same path as Anakin? Is he also going to to uh, uh, hand himself over to the dark side? Which all comes to a close, of course, in Return of the Jedi, where this confrontation, and this is part of the hero's journey, where you have to confront your father and somehow kind of figure out what, who are you and how are you going to move on and, uh, and, and, and who, what impact does that father have on your life and on your choices and on your future. And, and this is where Luke has to make a choice. And the Emperor knows this and he knows how troubled Luke has been in the past and he tries to, to use that against Luke by saying, you just step in the footsteps of your father. And, and, and Vader himself had already told Luke, you know, follow me, join me, and together, together, that's the temptation, we will rule the galaxy. And Luke has to refuse that because, yes, it's his father, but no, he doesn't share those values. He has a, a totally opposite value, so he chooses to plunge himself into the abyss rather than joining this, this authoritarian, abusive father. And, and it's ultimately in Return of the Jedi that Luke make makes a new choice when he starts to see, well, wait a minute, this emperor has been manipulating my father, and he, now he's manipulating me, and he may actually also go after my sister, and that is when Luke decides to, no, I have to, this is who I am, I am a Jedi like my father. And he talks, of, of course, about Anakin, and not about Darth Vader. He, he says, I want to define myself 
as the good part of my father that I believe is still in there somehow. And it may not come out, and, but I know that there is good, goodness in my father and that's who I want to be. I want to be a good Jedi like my father. And that breaks the walls around, uh, around Anakin's heart. And, and, and from Vader, he turns back into Anakin and he acknowledges that he has a responsibility as a father to protect his son. And he does that by sacrificing himself and killing the emperor until, of course, the sequels came along and somehow Palpatine returned. But we'll, we'll not talk about that. But anyway, it's, it's, it's something that all goes through my mind uh, now that I have to say farewell to my own father, who had these two sides, a very good side and also a very bad side. And, um, and both sides have had quite an impact on me, just like you know my whole relationship with my parents has had a, a massive impact on who I am and, uh, and has impacted me in a good way and also in, in not so good way. But it's ultimately up to me to decide what will define me. Who am I? I'm not a copy of my parents. Uh, no, no one is. You are not predetermined. It's not your fate, as the dark side always tries to lure you to, into believing. It's not your fate to, be, uh, to copy everything that your parents did. You are you. And you can choose, this is, how, this is what I define as good and as, as values of my parents that are my values. And I choose to be that father figure. Or I choose to be motherly in this way. And, um, and as for my own father, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's important to be realistic. Um, and uh, I'm always very careful when I hear about other people losing their parents because you don't often know the entire picture. Um, but what every one of us can do is to go over uh, who, who these parents have been for you or are for you and then say, well, but this is, this is what I recognize. And when I think of my father and how he impacted me in a positive way, I'm definitely thinking about his humor his incredible curiosity, his interest in history and, and Celtic culture and, and, uh, and music and all that and his sense of humor. And yeah, I know that was only part of who he was and he did have another, another attitude as well. Um, but that's, that's, that's in the past and that is for him to um, come to terms with when he's facing his creator. But it's up to me to move on with what I want to retain. And, and that is what I wanted to share with you today. Um, in a way, I, I love how Star Wars continued with the story of Rey, who is in, in many ways the opposite of Luke Skywalker. She has never known her parents. Um, and she doesn't really need a father figure. Uh, and, and, and when Finn is trying to play the father figure, let me rescue you. She's like, I don't need to be rescued. I can take care of myself. And yet you see that in her heart, there's also a certain void. She, she longs for connection, not necessarily parents, but she, does, she doesn't want to be alone. And that is how she connects so much with the other members of the resistance. That becomes her new family. She, she chooses to be in the end, actually, a very motherly figure. And, and I think that's how they are going to continue her story arc, that in, in this movie that they're 
going to make or are already making, um, she will be the mother of a new generation of Jedi. And it's going to be very interesting to see how she will define herself. And that is what, what I love about these stories. They always show us that, uh, you know, you may have had terrible father figures or terrible parents, um, but ultimately a good story ends with the, the protagonist, the hero, choosing his or her own path, learning from the past, taking from the past what is valuable and leaving the rest behind. That is what I wanted to share with you uh, on, on this uh, episode of my podcast. I hope you like this. Um, make sure also to take a look at my Patreon page if you want to uh, get the um, premium version of this podcast in which I talk about way more stuff. Uh, there's going to be a lot more content in that. Um, and so if you join my Patreon community, and even if it's just for the, for the lowest tier, um, you will get those uh, extra, these premium shows delivered straight into your personal feed that will work in your podcast's um, application. So anyway, that's just my little plug. If you want to support me, go over to patreon.com slash Father Roderick. There will be a new story next week, so talk to you then.